Are we good? I'm here. Oh, Zishan is here. Yeah, yeah, Woo! yeah. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Dara Lind, and we are joined by Zishan Alim, who is here to help us understand Donald Trump and trade and the trade war. The official trade war is starting today with China, as I understand it. That starts, right, the president and Xi Jinping go, one, two, three, four, I declare trade war. Yes, that is exactly how it works. Um, <laughs> but seriously, like, what literally happened today? Yeah, so at about 12.01 this morning, um, the U.S. officially initiated tariffs on $34 billion worth of Chinese goods. Um, They're being exported to the U.S. and it hits a variety of things like flat screen televisions, aircraft parts, medical devices, generally things that are sort of higher end tech. Um, So that officially went to place. And then China immediately responded and said, we are going to reciprocate those tariffs and hit the same amount, uh, same scale. Um, They haven't provided the exact details as of this moment, but the idea is that they're going to be hitting U.S. agricultural goods. Things like soybeans, pork, and, you know, other kinds of major sort of agricultural exports from the U.S. So these have been the opening salvos of a trade clash that's been talked about on and off since the campaign trail. So basic question, when we're talking about $34 billion worth of goods, that's like the estimate of how much in annual imports would be affected by this? Or is it literally like... There's a certain known universe of goods that are en route to or currently in the U.S. that, if you towed them up, are worth $34 billion. Well, the idea is that $34 billion worth of goods are going to get 25% tariffs. So they're going to be 25% more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it means that when importers are going to pull them into the U.S., then they have to pay an extra 25% on those goods. And that makes them a lot more expensive at the border. And basically, the effect is going to be that they're going to become a lot more expensive for U.S. consumers and demand for them will likely plummet. But that's $34 billion over the next year or $34 billion that are on the market right now? Um, I would It's s- like an annual okay. estimate. It's an annual, right? yeah, it's an okay. annual estimate, yeah. So what is the point right. of this, right? So sometimes you'll say like, oh, you know, they're making all these cheap widgets and I want to help out our widget guys. So we're going to put a tax on the foreign widgets and save our jobs. But this is like a little bit more complicated than that, right? Like there's a new tax coming in on imported Chinese self-propelled lathes. And this is not exactly to protect American lathe makers, right? There's some official legal claim being made. Yeah, exactly. So in some ways, this is not the most conventional America first maneuver more than protecting the U.S. is more about sort of lashing out at China and punishing it for certain practices that it's engaging in. Specifically, what's being invoked right now is Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974, something that basically hasn't been used since, uh, you know, WTO, the World Trade Organization, came in, you know, into existence in the 90s. The formal legal rationale is that the U.S. is punishing China for engaging in unfair practice as far as allowing foreign companies to enter the Chinese market. So one thing in particular is that in order to 
say, if you're a U.S. business and you want to set up shop in China, right now, Chinese laws make it so that most companies are going to have to become a joint venture with a U.S. company and often hand over their most prized intellectual property just to be able to operate in China. And the reason that's such a big deal is because basically it, in the long term, the company loses the very thing that makes it valuable in the market. And these Chinese companies, many of which are state-owned, are able to absorb these sorts of things, create companies that can sort of replicate that technology and sort of beat the U.S. at its own game. So it's called sort of forced technology transfer. And the idea is in the long run, it's a great play for the Chinese economy, and it's going to sort of weaken the competitive edge that a lot of U.S. companies have. There's a certain interesting element to this, right? Because the allegation essentially is that China makes it too difficult for an American company. Like like mm-hmm. if Boeing wants to go outsource its work and hire cheap Chinese workers and produce its airplanes in China rather than the United States, that the Chinese government is making that too difficult, right? Like it's not like the classic populist complaint, right, is that like China is undercutting us by making it too easy for companies to set up shop there and, and operate. But Trump is actually making the opposite claim that their terms are too onerous and that it's mm-hmm. uh, there, there, there's there's like there's like a long-term strategic theory here right but in the short term if china dropped all these joint venture requirements and technology transfer requirements like more manufacturing jobs it seems to me would would flow to china right what you've identified is that there's a conflict between the kind of political narrative and the economic narrative, right? Like, we know that Donald Trump, as a human being, thinks that there is absolutely no reason why the American manufacturing sector shouldn't be up and roaring again and sees this as a very important matter. But the economic argument, as Zishan laid it out, is that America is past that as an economy, that right now, you know, the development of intellectual property is one of the chief selling points of our companies, and therefore, If the Chinese government is able to take that knowledge from the U.S., that that's going to be a problem for U.S. companies down the road. It's two different arguments about what the American economy is really going to be best at going forward. But, like, my question about this is this seems like a problem that countries may have dealt with in the past. Are tariffs really the kind of standard way to respond to forced technology transfer? Or is this kind of when you have a tariff hammer, everything looks like a tariff nail? Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of precedent for this. What China is doing and what it represents in the scheme of the global economy is highly unusual in terms of the sheer size of the Chinese economy and the speed at which it's advancing from, you know, industrial powerhouse and with sort of more basic goods and and that oftentimes it's competitive sort of advantage has been cheap labor to one that's now really trying to make a bid to become an advanced manufacturing tech mecca and become something that makes aircraft and robotics and microchips. You know, there is no other country that has as much leverage as China does in terms of making companies trying to enter its market agree to these incredibly onerous terms Mm. um, that are self-defeating because no one has a market like China does. It's in terms of um, the amount of consumers it has many of which are becoming more affluent by the year, there's no other country that has anything even comparable in terms of, you know, their sort of purchasing power. And that's what gives them their leverage. Tariffs are a really, really sort of blunt, vulgar kind of 
tool to use to do this kind of thing. And, and, and I think the way, honestly, that Trump is thinking about this kind of thing is I don't think he has a particularly sophisticated knowledge of the way that technology transfer works and has a long view of the economy. No, right you now. don't think he's been like <laughs> boning up on the briefing books on this? So. He and yeah, Peter I, Navarro staying up late into the night looking at patent diagrams. <laughs> <laughs> trying, to, trying to understand. Yeah. yeah, no. For some reason, I'm skeptical. But I think he basically thinks of this the Section 301 thing as sort of a harsh tool for sort of trying to bring China uh, to the negotiating table. And there's different kinds of actors in the government that view this through a different lens. I mean, a Section 301 investigation, this thing that's going on right now, is something that it wouldn't necessarily have to be a fierce nationalist who, who bucks free trade like Trump to go about this kind of investigation. It, it could have been done under a Democrat or Republican insofar as, you know, basically there's a consensus across the political spectrum that the U.S. has to kind of come up with ways to rein in the sort of, you know, competitive threat that China, you know, represents to its own sort of prowess um, in, in manufacturing and, and as well as the rest of the world. Yeah, we should, we should actually make this clear yes. because, because so often Trump is like making things up. Right. But like the— Or creating problems. But the, the practices that he is identifying here, like this is real. Right. Like whether or not a 25 percent tax on imported, uh, you know, um, boat propellers or, or whatever is, is, is the right solution. Like it is genuinely the case that American companies looking to do business in China end up needing to turn over a lot of their sort of trade secrets and intellectual property to Chinese companies. And that this is something that a wide range of people have varying levels of, of concern about both in the United States and, and in other countries. Like this is not like um, the people throwing bags of heroin over the wall or whatever. Right. I think that it's worth drawing a distinction here. Like in other Trump protectionist things, you know, when he's been talking about steel and aluminum tariffs, like the political argument is the argument for that, right? Like Donald Trump appears to genuinely think it's a matter of national security to have a robust domestic steel industry, even if the countries from whom we're importing steel are our allies. And so that appears to be a solution in search of a problem like so many of Trump's other policies. But the yelping you see from economists on a China trade war is qualitatively different. It's not like, why the hell are you shooting yourself in the foot like this? There's no reason for this. This is totally economically boneheaded. It's much more, uh, this could get very bad very fast, right? Like the, the U.S. and China going at each other could accelerate very radically. And so even if the germ of the problem is legitimate, we may not be able to control the response so that it's proportionate to the original problem of forced technology transfer. Well, see, so, so let's let's talk about this. Like, what is a trade war? Like, will, yeah. will millions die? Like, do we expect to see children crying in the streets next week? Like, yeah. it's a big metaphor. Yeah. Well, I, I want to actually just, if I could add yeah, one yeah, point yeah. just to what Dar was saying. I mean, no, I totally agree with uh, the point you're making. And I think it's important to think through what it means that there may be a legitimate problem that's being identified by the administration and then the fact that Trump as an individual is bringing a different kind of analysis to bear upon this and mm -hmm. that he is using 301 as a vehicle for other things he might want to do. One is generally speaking just sort of sound tough on China and say that he did tough things to China. Another thing is he clearly views this as a tool for maybe getting China to agree 
to buy more things from the U.S. because he thinks it could reduce the U.S.-China trade deficit. So maybe they'll buy a lot more airplanes. And then he can sort of sell that to his base as this kind of micro-victory where he's like, well, I got tough with China with these tariffs. You know, he doesn't really care if it's for what reason exactly, Section 301 or intellectual property transfer. He's like, and guess what? China bought a lot more airplanes because I got tough. And I think that's important for understanding the way this policy is executed because if Trump isn't thinking about this in a kind of a long view kind of way in terms of how can we get China to change the way that it engages with international markets and he's thinking more in terms of the short term in terms of goading or compelling China to provide some kind of symbolic concessions – then, you know, things are going to play out differently. The way he goes about the policy is going to be different. The way China responds based on those estimating Trump's intentions is going to be different as well. If, if it's a sort of a, a kind of a sloppy kind of thing, China might not respond in, in, in the same kind of predictable uh, kind of way. But anyway, so, so turn to your question about what is a trade war. It's a term that's thrown around a lot in the media. It's, it's a really dramatic kind of term. But it's not really sort of a, a, a technical term that there's universally agreed upon by economists. And, but the best way to understand you know, what this is in a broad sense is to sort of look at what a normal trade dispute looks like. So just sort of as an example, let's just say the U.S. and another country, country X, are, are in a trade dispute about tennis balls. The U.S. takes issue with the way that country X decides to subsidize the tennis balls and it manufactures. It uses government subsidies to make them cheaper. Those and, bastards. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, assist the industry. And Country X all of a sudden can sell tennis balls at much cheaper rates in global markets and in the U.S. And the U.S. is like, well, we can't compete with that. Um, that's unfair. There's no way we're going to be able to sell the same amount of tennis balls. So the U.S. has a few different options. Uh, it can take this diabolical country X to, uh, you know, the WTO, the World Trade Organization, which is basically like the Supreme Court for international trade, and say, you know, they're being unfair. Uh, can you do something about this? And you go through the process and, and a board of judge will say, yes, like uh, country X has to comply with international rules. They must stop this. Or they could give the U.S. permission to issue tariffs against uh, their tennis balls. Uh, another thing that the U.S. could do is just get into direct talks with that country and they could strike a deal. And a sort of third option is the U.S. could just go ahead and unilaterally impose tariffs on that country's tennis balls and say, you know, you're being unfair. We're not going to put up with this. Um, and you're going to feel the effects immediately. At that point in time, uh, that country has the option to sort of just sort of take it. Um, or they could decide to respond and retaliate with tariffs against something else um, that the U.S. maybe exports to, uh, that's valuable, maybe baseballs. The way things become, you know, what's commonly, you know, anticipated as as a trade war is when the U.S. would then respond to that other country's response. So there's a tit, then there's a tat, and then basically the U.S. is like, no, we're going to actually strike you again. So the idea okay. is is that basically the escalation of trade barriers is becoming uncontrolled. And that's sort of what we're approaching with China right now because basically what just happened today was we had the U.S. issue 30 tariffs on $34 billion worth of Chinese goods. The China says we will respond in kind. In a couple of weeks, we're probably going to see another $16 billion worth of tariffs on Chinese goods come through. China has said that they'll probably respond to that as well. And then there's a question of what's going to happen next. Trump has threatened tariffs on up to $500 billion worth of Chinese goods. 
And that move is when it's sort of more appropriate to say, like, this is becoming a real kind of trade war. Um, the term is used loosely. People use it in different ways. But the idea is that it's kind of there's sort of constant escalations and you can't tell when there's an end in sight. And it's not something that in the post-war era, there's a lot of precedent for. Generally speaking, there's a, you know, back and forth and they're kind of one-off or, or, or you know, especially as world trades become more organized, countries go to, you know, the formal legal, you know, arbitrations to sort of sort this thing yeah, out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think okay. this point has been sort of neglected in, in a lot of the, lot of the coverage, which is that, like, trade disputes are not, unusual. Right. Right. But the move, the big trend over the past 30 years has been to try to organize them into this sort of judicial-esque process in which you would say, oh, I have this problem. And then if you got a favorable ruling, either your adversary would back down or else you would be given permission to do retaliatory tariffs and one feature of that system is that it tends to contain the escalation cycles, right? Mm-hmm. Because because either it encourages somebody to back down or else it sort of caps how much retaliation has been authorized. And one of the striking things about Trump's conduct, right, because I think it's easy to miss this. Like you can see all this coverage of trade war, trade war, trade war, and then you do the math on like – a 25% tax on $34 billion worth of Chinese imports, and you get $8.5 billion worth of tax increase in an $18 trillion economy. And just not that big of a deal, right? But what is a big deal is deciding to go outside the whole process to right. do it, right? That it, Trump is not resorting to these means because he's been foiled at the WTO, Right, like he's not trying as a as a deliberate administration gesture. We have like disengaged with the multilateral process. He talks a lot of shit about international organizations constantly at at rallies. And the thing that people are nervous about is like not really like what's on this list of tariffs, but it's the idea of an unspooling of, right. of, of a system of containment. What this actually strikes me as more than anything, you know, if we're operating on the war metaphor, is the strike on Syria last year after Bashar al-Assad was documented using chemical weapons. Like, in that case, it was clear that it wasn't that Trump had made a decision untethered from whether the U.N. was authorizing particular, you know, response to the use of chemical weapons. It also wasn't clear at the time that it was just going to be the one thing, right? Like Syria is a big ongoing conflict involving a lot of world powers at this point. And there was definitely an open question as to is this a very well-contained response to a discrete incident or is it a signal of escalating confrontation in something that could very easily turn into a quagmire. And, you know, there as here, there is an international body that is supposed to regulate and contain those disputes. And once you've untethered from them, both because you've decided that you don't have faith in the process and because Donald Trump is both the kind of person who is interested in withdrawing from international dispute resolution systems and the kind of person who is not necessarily predictable in what he's going to want to do at any given time, it's very difficult to understand where the limit is. Like, 
I don't know how much faith we necessarily should have. And Zishan or Matt, you should tell me if I'm wrong about this, about like, is the cap of $500 billion on potential retaliation a hard cap? Is that something that could very easily go by the wayside? Like, where is the ceiling here? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And yeah, I want to emphasize the point that it's not just that Trump is breaking precedent or moving away from multilateral organizations and is kind of extra institutional in the way he behaves, but that he is so unpredictable as an individual and his actual, this is one of those rare instances, I, I tend to think more sort of structural in terms of when I think about politics and policy, but the personality of Trump matters a lot here, I think, in terms of trying to understand the way the tariff escalation cycle could operate. Because even if you had a president who decided to distance themselves from the WTO because they found it to be inadequate for dealing with China, which is something conceivably another president certainly could have done, but they would be thinking in a kind of deliberate and careful and economically rational way about the costs of escalating tariffs. And with Trump, it's clear that he doesn't have a deep grasp of the economics or that he's paying attention to costs very much and that a lot of this is about managing face for him and the way that ego can play a role here in terms of, you know, that threat city issues and the ways in which he corners himself by issuing a threat and then later on having to probably deliver on that threat, even if it could be, you know, result in sort of catastrophic things for the economy or or, or for U.S.-Chinese relations. I think that's a key factor here in trying to, you know, understand how things are going to go and, and, and they're fundamentally unpredictable. Okay. With the threat of catastrophe in the air, uh, let's take a break and, and then come back and want to talk about the, the even bigger picture on trade. Everybody's got some like little mundane tasks that you could use help completing. A task that takes time away from the more important things you need to do in life. Finn is a high-quality, on-demand assistant that handles the administrative aspects of life so you can focus on what really matters most. So thousands of busy professionals already rely on Finn to handle tasks like scheduling meetings, booking travel, buying gifts, or even more complicated jobs like creating a website, planning an event, or or performing market research. Uh, Finn takes care of administrative tasks so you can make better use of your time and be more productive. There's not enough time in the day to get absolutely everything done. You know, in a dream world, maybe, like, I would just have a full-time assistant who does everything for me. But that is not the reality. And Finn is a great option, right? Because it knows your own preferences. It remembers the people you interact with. It integrates with your email and calendar. It can make calls, send emails on your behalf, pay bills, remember important dates, automatically get things done for you. So, you know, you don't need 40 hours of work for an assistant every week. Finn is just always available. It's on demand. You only pay for the time that you actually use. So once you try Finn, uh, they think you're really going to love it. So as a listener of the show, you've got a chance to try Finn for free. Just use our special link, Finn.com com slash weeds that's f-i-n dot com slash weeds and you can try fin for free fin.com slash weeds If you like listening to Vox content, you're going to love watching Vox content on Netflix. Uh, We have a new show. The show is called Explained. Each episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. An early preview of this week's episode, and it's about the search for extraterrestrial life, aliens, basically. This explains the moments that scientists have believed they've found evidence of extraterrestrial life based on the math behind what's known as the Fermi paradox, a really interesting question about, like, why we haven't found the aliens yet. And, And it moves our understanding 
understanding of the search for extraterrestrial life uh, from the world of science fiction into the world of science. Uh, you can understand, you know, why scientists are confident that there's biology someplace beyond Earth, even though we haven't found it, explores the basic question behind the search, are we alone? It's really impressive work. Uh, so go find it on Netflix, search for Vox, or go straight to netflix.com slash explained. Okay, so Zishan, if you're only following the news a, a little bit vaguely, you may be saying to yourself, wait, wasn't the trade war something to do with steel and Canada? Right. Like, what, what, what is that about? Yeah, so— Does it relate, or is it completely separate? Um, it's completely separate in some ways, and in other ways, it's, it, it's highly related. The way in which it's separate is the steel and aluminum tariffs are part of a different uh, sort of— trade case altogether. Um, basically, Trump has initiated a 25% tariff on all foreign steel coming to the U.S. and 10% tariff on all aluminum coming into the U.S. In order to do this, his administration used an obscure bit of trade law, uh, Section 232 in the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. It's a pretty unexpected bit of legalese to use, but basically says that the U.S. can block the import of materials critical for national security in order to ensure that the country has, you know, reliable supplies in the event of a war. Right, because like if there's something we need to make tank treads, right, we don't want our only supplier of that to be like in China because mm -hmm. Fair enough. if there's a war, even not a war with China, right, we don't want them to be able to, like, needle us in the middle of the Iraq war and be like, oh, sorry, I heard you guys like tank treads, but right. but, but too bad. So, so like, that, that makes sense on some level, right? Right. And, like, and so metal, right, a lot of military equipment seems to be made out of metal, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So it makes sense. <laughs> um, but Canada? Yeah, so— in the abstract, this sort of law makes a lot of sense. But in terms of the reality of where we get steel and aluminum from, that makes this whole thing look a lot more complicated and fraught. And it's why it's resulted in a great deal of diplomatic discomfort and, and fighting. So basically, the U.S. gets steel and aluminum from a lot of countries it considers close allies and friends um, from Canada, from uh, you know Japan, from Mexico, from South Korea, from Europe, especially specifically from Germany, especially. And to be clear, like these are not countries that it would be reasonable to worry about. They're going to like say sorry about your tank treads, right? Like it's there's, just, there's like a gentleman's agreement that you're going to be cool <laughs> with helping the other countries' industries of war. Yeah, conventionally, it's understood that if you're getting these materials from close allies that you're going to be going to war with rather than against in any foreseeable future, it's sort of odd to invoke that law to block off those imports from them. It's hard to see us getting into a serious war with Canada anytime soon. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's insulting when you invoke those countries. I mean, a lot of the leaders have you know, explicitly gone out of their way to say that they're offended by this and that it's kind of a stain upon the sort of, you know, friendship that the U.S. is supposed to have with these kinds of countries. You know, Justin Trudeau has gone out of his way to talk about how he's sort of insulted by it. And it's, you know, legally questionable. And so the way 
a lot of countries, Canada, um, Mexico, um, and the EU have responded to is by retaliating because they sort of view it as illegitimate and they have started targeting other U.S. industries, some um, steel and aluminum exports from the U.S., but also other industries as well. And, and I mean, this is like in some ways even more so than China, like a really clear example of Trump just kind of slipping out of the boundaries that govern trade discourse, right? I mean, we're like as Americans who cover politics, we're sort of accustomed to the fact that Trump like lies a lot. But like this is sort of like the lies made real, right? Like Donald Trump, he may be an uninformed person about public policy, but he's not putting a tax on Canadian aluminum because he's concerned that the Canadian government is going to cut off our aluminum supplies right. in wartime, right? Like that, that beggars belief, right? right? He's he's operating on a pure pretext because it's an area where the law gives him authority, where traditionally the courts have been very deferential to presidential national security claims. Yep. And so I know and you know and Justin Trudeau knows and everybody knows that like there's no bona fide national security concern here, but nobody can stop him from invoking it. And that, I think, Terry, you, you talked about, like, states of exception. Yeah. Right? Yeah, this is— And this is, like, taking a weird state of exception and, like, putting it into a, like, very mainstream aspect of policymaking, which is, like, can I get some metal to make my cans? Yeah. And, like, suddenly, no. It's also, I think, worth thinking about this uh, as Donald Trump is about to nominate a new justice to the Supreme Court, because one of the things that Justice Gorsuch and at least one of the finalists for the next slot as well have been really hammering on in their jurisprudential careers is the idea of Chevron deference, which is that the judicial branch gives deference to the executive branch when there's multiple ways to interpret a statute. And the line against Chevron deference is it creates backwards reasoning where the administration says, here's the policy goal we want to get to. Can we find a legal way to do that? So in other words, this is kind of the paradigmatic example of like why judicial conservatives generally think Chevron deference is bad, but it's happening because of a national security exemption, which judicial conservatives have not been as aggressive with as they have been with, you know, other forms of ruling against the executive. So it really does kind of raise the question, if this is the kind of behavior that leads people like Justice Gorsuch to say we need to give the executive branch less leeway in interpreting the law, what does that mean for what Donald Trump is doing here? Or is it something where, in theory, they don't like it when the executive branch interprets the law, but in practice, they're going to let it slide because it's Donald Trump and he's a Republican or because it's a national security rationale? Well, and when Trump talks about this, right, like he keeps bringing up the way Canada closes its doors to American dairy exports, yes. right? Which I would say he somewhat mischaracterizes this, but is a a kind of real thing, but also very much not, not a national, national security, security issue. <laughs> issue, right? They basically have like a quantitative cap on how much imported dairy products you can get. And, you know, if you ever visit Canada, it's it's not that different from the United States. Um, but But milk is definitely more expensive as a result of this. Yeah. I could totally invent a national security rationale for for needing to export 
milk to Canada more cheaply so that the Canadian children who one day might be fighting alongside America in one of our wars will have strong bones. That is not the rationale that Trump is using. But you're right. Like, this does raise questions of legality and accountability because we know that the political argument that's being made is not the legal argument that's being made. And my big thing about all of this is for decades— Business people were extremely consistent in thinking that the purpose of government was to ensure predictability for markets, that like even more than deregulation, it was important to have consistency, important for business owners to know whether and how they were going to be directed by the government in what they could or could not do. And so, you know, so that they could make investment decisions, yada, yada, yada. Nothing about Donald Trump indicates predictability for investors or anything else. Like, he is the opposite of all of the emphasis on law and economy, on rule of law, on not making decisions based on kind of personal relationships. That is why people who support the free market think the rule of law is important. And yet, Wall Street has not, for the most part, reacted to the fact that, you know, generally the man in the White House doesn't appear to care about the sorts of things they think businesses need to function. The one exception to this has been tariffs. When there have been new announcements of tariffs, there really has been a temporary Wall Street freakout. And it appears to me to be kind of the one case in which there is an understanding that despite being a Republican, Donald Trump might not be a pro-business president in a way that could actually hurt the U.S. economy. But I really want to know, and like, I don't know that this is a question that either of you can answer, but like, what does it take to get a typical Wall Street analyst who is still 18 months into the Trump administration under the impression that because deregulation and tax cuts, business is going to be un- in great shape under this president to realize that, like, actually the president can do things that are going to hurt American businesses and sectors very quickly without necessarily a ton of warning or without people taking him terribly seriously initially. And so maybe it's not a good idea to just kind of assume that everything's going to work out OK in the end. I think that one thing that Trump is reminding us of is that I wish you could go back in time and remind Barack Obama and his administration of this, but is that like fundamentally practical-minded business people are full of shit. (laughs) And the stuff that they say is important to economic conditions just often isn't that important, right? And Mm -hmm. that, like, basically Donald Trump is presiding over the reasonable monetary policy that is moderately expansionary, big fiscally stimulative tax cuts and spending increases. Like, the stuff that, like, liberals were saying in 2009, 2010 we needed to be doing, Donald Trump is basically doing in terms of fiscal and monetary stimulus. He's also doing all this other stuff. Like, he's creating uncertainty. He's creating minor inefficiencies in in the trade markets. And and none of it is good. But, like, 
the macro economy is like an elephant. And this stuff about like the allocation of the global supply chain is like, um, I don't know, like little uh, chipmunks or something. And it, it's just not that important. And in a funny way, you know, when there's a Republican administration in office, rich businessmen see this more clearly. Like you no longer see councils of CEOs saying that the real problem in the economy is that the national debt is too high, even though it's higher than ever. They don't like Democrats. You know what I mean? Like rich businessmen, they don't like Democrats on tax policy. They don't like Democrats on environmental regulation. But like more than that, like on a gut level, like they don't like Democrats. Like they don't like noisy activists. They don't like college students. They don't like hippies. They don't like people yelling at them about diversity, you know? And like when Democrats are in office, they get very prickly and annoyed about things and they have a lot of complaints. And when like a rich old white guy from the business world is president, like they feel better. But like policy is policy. Now we may look back on this five years from now and like all of global trade is in rubble and I look like an idiot. Um, but it's not in rubble so far. Like notwithstanding like how ridiculous it is to have a 20% tax on Canadian aluminum, it's not like a typical person is like gorging themselves on Canadian aluminum. Like we'll live. So so you're basically saying that we're in a wily e. Coyote position right now where like as long as they don't look down, we're going to be OK. <laughs> as long as, you know, look, as long as we don't go from 34 billion to 500 billion. Right. And like this China trade, like there's a big difference between 34 and 500. Um, it's I, I can't do subtraction. 468. See, that's right, a big difference. <laughs> Shame on me. OK. Suzanne, do you have a more pessimistic take? No, no. I, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. I, I, I think that there is. <laughs> A lot of alarmism about it. And even as saying earlier, I think just the sort of the the terminology, the term trade war you know, is conjuring up images of, of, of bodies strewn everywhere and, and, and total ruin. Right. If you called it a small tax increase rather than a right. trade war. Or even a trade yeah. escalation. Like- trade escalation. Yeah. I mean, yeah, right now that there's a kind of assumption that everything is going to pan out in the worst possible way as opposed to a modest increases in the price of certain consumer goods and and maybe sort of a, a little bit of ebbing in, in, in foreign investment. What I'm struck by more throughout this so far, at least, is the kind of pointlessness of it all. It, it just seems that there's a lot of tough talk and I just don't see how it's going to be fruitful for the economy when every time Trump is going about issuing these tariffs, whether it's steel and aluminum, whether it's these ones that are not being handled in, in a particularly careful way with China or upcoming ones that might be on foreign cars. And, you know, we can talk about that later if you want to. Pretty much every country has decided to respond by retaliating or promising to retaliate. And they end up hitting another industry, often ones that are really important to the U.S. Uh, it, it could be the automobile sector. It could be agriculture and, and, and can be various high-tech kind of goods. So what happens is Trump decides to intervene in, you know, the market and, and weigh in on behalf of one industry. And then the pain that it may be suffering from foreign competition is just displaced and then imposed on another part of the economy. And it's so it's not the economy that's as a whole that's being advanced, just certain sectors. And the sectors that are being, you know, sort of defended or championed are just are not necessarily being chosen in a strategic way. You know, if you're talking about steel and aluminum and cars, this is not like sort of the forefront of American industry. 
This is really being fueled by something sort of aesthetic and sociocultural. It's about kind of the, the sort of American heartland nostalgia about like what we should consider to be the real soul of the American economy from sort of Trump's perspective. But it's not a great investment to sort of prop up in industries that are not doing, you know, particularly well for a variety of reasons that may not be competitive and then then experience, you know, big costs for industries that really matter. And this is also going to have, by the way, political consequences or it could have serious political consequences for for Trump and, and the GOP come November. A lot of the retaliatory tariffs are deliberately being targeted at industries that, you know, come from states that are Republican uh, strongholds and, 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 you know, swing states. So, you know, when you're hitting things like soybeans and pork and bourbon from Kentucky and, you know, Harley-Davidson motorcycles from Wisconsin. And, you know, let's say that the tariffs actually bite and there's layoffs in these industries. That could be one of the few things, I think, that could actually cause a, a more substantial decline in support for Trump among his sort of core supporters if, if they actually see sort of more economic instability, um, you know, in, in their communities. I think that it's really important to note that, like, the implication of what you're saying is that this isn't Donald Trump protecting the industries that employ his base. This is a lot of people who voted for Trump work in industries that are export dependent, that are actually mm -hmm. much mm -hmm. more hurt by tariffs than they would be helped by them. But also, I am not sure it's possible to predict what the political fallout of this is, because I think that while you're right about potential material impact, there's also a story Donald Trump tells about the world, which is, Everybody is out to get us. If we try to cooperate with them, we'll get the wool pulled over our eyes because the natural posture is always adversarial. And so even if the industries that employ them are being retaliated against by these tariffs, it vindicates Donald Trump's idea to, you know, take an adversarial posture with them because it shows that they were really against us all along. So mm -hmm. I'm not 100 percent sure, especially you know, it really does depend on how symbolic they think political fights are, because we've definitely seen evidence over the last couple of decades that people aren't necessarily making a calculus of how was I doing economically over the last four years? OK, I should either vote for the person in power or out of power. That does affect things. But there also are people who think, yeah, I'm doing badly, but I would be doing even worse if this person weren't in power because he is standing up for people like me. I do think the vulnerability that Trump has on this score is that if you look at, you know, places where big agricultural commodities are made, uh, a lot of those are places, you know, like, like Iowa is, is paradigmatic here, places that not only were very strong Trump country, but places that are new to the Trump coalition. Like, it's easy for me to believe that, like, a place like Oklahoma could, like, take a pounding but still stay fundamentally loyal to Republican Party voting that is, like, deeply ingrained in people's psyche there. But, like, Barack Obama won Iowa twice. You know, like, it's not like Iowans – like the idea of voting for a Democrat is unthinkable, right? right? No, Trump won Iowa by a large margin. It was like the swing from 2012 to 2016 was enormous there. But, you know, I mean, people are, remember what they were up to five or six years ago in life, right? And if you take a risk on somebody, right, and you break with your traditional voting pattern, and then it turns out 
that like some of his controversial ideas like backfire on you and hurt your income. Like that really seems like the sort of most plausible possible scenario for like concrete policy impacts to actually shift people's voting. That like he on the campaign trail put together this symbolic politics that really unified factory workers, just old people with nostalgia, people working in rural commodity producing industries, like energy extractors and farmers. But the reality is that like the commercial marketplace is very complicated and like the interests even of the people who work in steel factories and the people who work in car factories are different and the interests of people who work on uh, soybean farms are different again. And what I do think is is an interesting question is just how much does it matter quantitatively in the end? Because right. so, something that I do think is easy to forget is that like the price of commodities varies quite a bit over time, you know, based on like weather and, you know, happenstance in Australia and, and things like that. So I think it's like genuinely impossible to predict what the price of these commodities is going to be. And, you know, you can always catch a ride of, of good luck. Um, but people often sort of like spin up these theories of Donald Trump's political genius. And uh, Ezra Klein had a good piece just noting that his overall approval rating is not that high. And this whole trade thing just seems like an example of not fully thinking through what you're doing in a like normal presidential way and not really kicking the tires on, on all the angles here. I don't know. I, I think that this is going to be an interesting test because I think we've we've seen a surprising amount of robustness in people's ability to disapprove sometimes strenuously of things that that come from Donald Trump's mind and actions while still approving of Donald Trump. And I would not be surprised if somehow there was some way to square this circle where people who are really invested at this point in being on Donald Trump's side and him being on theirs find some other explanation for what's going on with them that does not require them to admit that Donald Trump, the great businessman who is finally accepting that our country needs to be protected and look after itself, is the reason that they're suffering. Yeah, I mean, the best case is somebody did a report from this nail factory in Missouri that's like the only nail factory in America, and the bosses were saying, like, oh, we're going to have to shut the factory down soon because metal is getting more expensive. And apparently the people working there were still, like, on the Trump train. And, and one of them was, like, literally saying, like, he's a smart businessman. He must know what he's doing. I will be interested to see, like, if the factory actually does close down and everybody actually does lose their job? Does that faith that there's like a strategic yeah. plan here persist? But wait, Zishan, quickly before we end, can we talk about cars a little bit? Because that seems like the next frontier here. We're gonna we're gonna crack down on on European cars. Yeah. So basically, right now the administration's considering putting twenty to twenty five percent tariffs on foreign cars, uh, and 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 especially this would be a big deal with um, a lot of European cars, particularly those coming from. Germany, and it's actually using the same uh, national security rationale that was used on steel and aluminum. And you can see how, as you guys were pointing out, that you know what seems to be kind of a bad faith exploitation of a loophole is being pushed even further because it's kind of easier to wrap your mind around the idea of how, at least theoretically, of course, like steel and aluminum coming from other countries is vital to produce domestically in the case that you have to build a lot of tanks for a war. Right. We make tanks out of steel. We don't make right. tanks out of Volkswagen. But, but yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, I, we're not – I don't think that like melting BMWs is like a, an efficient <laughs> way to make, uh, you know, uh, aircraft. 
And it's incredibly odd. And the rationale just becomes a lot less. It becomes just incredibly obvious um, how tortured the, the sort of argument is. And at this point in time, the administration was just saying that the decline of domestic automobile production was just threatening the general economy in the U.S. and then reduces, you know, R&D and jobs for skilled workers. And then somehow that's a national security threat because we fall behind on that kind of thing. That's obviously not going to be persuasive. Right now, there's a back and forth going on. There's talks um, with Germany and with the EU about potentially striking a deal. But so the thing that's driving Trump with this is the fact that the EU imposes tariffs on U.S. automobiles at a much higher rate than the U.S. does on European cars. And, you know, there might be a deal in which Europe decides to eliminate theirs and then Trump won't you know, sort of, you know, go about this case. But that could take a really long time because of WTO regulations make it so that the EU would actually and the U.S. have to include a lot of other countries and also include agreements on other sectors and everything in free trade agreement world moves incredibly slowly. And um, patience is not, um, you know, one of Trump's um, signature strengths. So it's really hard to say exactly how it's going to work out. But it's another example of, yeah, a tortured legal argument. And also, again, this sort of politics, economic policy of nostalgia, where you are willing to endure potentially serious costs, a, a whole new raft of retaliatory tariffs on behalf of one industry um, and, and being willing to see, you know, damage to a, a whole bunch of others. Fun. All right. Uh, at least the podcasting industry is going to stay robust, uh, <laughs> as far as we know, here in the new exciting era of, of trade wars, so you can keep listening. I don't know. I would probably ask our uh, engineers if they require some self-propelling lathes to put a podcast yeah, on. Yeah, well, who knows? It. I mean, podcasting equipment, but we've already got the studio set up so we can keep generating audio content. Listen to us. Listen to the other Vox Media Podcast Network shows. Join our Facebook group and, uh, you know, continue the discussion, including, I mean, how are we taking advantage of the new bounty of cheap pork and soybeans? Uh, I might, I might, I might get some bacon afterward. It could be delightful. Um, so thanks a lot, Zishan, for for joining us. Um, thanks to our engineer Griffin Tanner, our producer Bridget Armstrong, and the weeds will return on Tuesday.